Do you feel safer already? That was a question asked by one of the leading senators on the Republican side when the crime bill was passed. I don't know about you, but I haven't experienced any immediate change, and I'm not sure I'm going to between now and next year. But there has been a multiple billion dollar crime bill passed by our government, much of which is called pork by the Republicans. But you and I don't know what is that pork. We don't know which member of the House of Representatives wrote that particular part of the bill. We don't know what city he comes from. We don't know who are his constituents. You know, they always said in the CIA when they're trying to track down these drug lords who have offshore banks down in the Bahamas and so on, follow the money, follow the paper trail, follow the money, and you will get eventually, if you follow the money, where all the chicanery and all the dirt, all the garbage is going on. You and I have been utterly unable to hear, I think, even a full paragraph read to us on CNN or any other news media that I know about out of a bill that is probably as thick as our Bible. Have you heard very much about it? Have you read any of it? Has any of it been read to you? Have segments of it been published in your newspaper? No. As a matter of fact, I doubt that many of the people in the House of Representatives even read all the way through it. But wouldn't it be interesting if we could have seen which member of the House crafted which midnight basketball program in which city, and to whom are those hundreds of thousands of dollars going to go? Are they going to rent the YMCA? Are they going to rent the Baptist Church basement basketball court? Are they going to rent the high school facilities, or are they going to build a brand new one? Are they talking about putting up backstops in an empty parking lot so the people in the apartments can be treated to all of the shouts and the jeers at about 12.30, 1, 1.30 o'clock in the morning when most normal people ought to be in bed? What is this about midnight basketball? Well, the other day I saw a man interviewed, and he was talking about all these kids who had dropped out, and because of that, they're roaming around, they got nothing to do. So we, the government, meaning you and I, in our tax dollars, have got to provide something for these kids to do. Let's turn to Isaiah, the 59th chapter, if we may. I would urge you to read, I probably should have brought the editorial from the latest edition of the U.S. News and World Report to read to you about where went our values. <clears throat> Pardon me. And there was quite a, an indictment against the moral standards and the values of the United States of America going through really basically everything that is wrong with us, from the attack and the breakdown of the family, to feminism, to pedophilia and homosexuality, to drug and alcohol addiction, to the fragmented school systems and the complete decay of our educational systems and institutions to the point that the three bastions of anything that seems to be decent and moral in the United States, the family, the school, and the church, is under increasing attack. And anyone who stands for those values is called a bigot. Behold, the eternal hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. And you know the reason Isaiah put it in that way is because it is obvious he is not intervening. He is not reaching down here and solving any problems for us. 
He is not rescuing Haiti. He is not plucking Cubans from the sea. He did not prevent the hacking, the butchery, to death of hundreds of thousands of Rwandans. He did not prevent the starvation of hundreds of thousands of Somalians. He is not preventing right now, while you sit here, the rapes that are taking place, the murders that are taking place, the automobile accidents that maim, injure, or kill about 55,000 Americans every year. Almighty God is not intervening. He is not accomplishing anything. He isn't doing anything except what they try to promulgate in their propaganda in a lot of places such as this that are called churches where they talk about how mightily the Lord is moving among us just now. Meaning, I guess, an emotional feeling you get out of a particular song or the report you get from the missionary couple who stand there and tell you of all the people in Africa that they saved or whatever. But where it counts, where it really means something, where it really deals with the incredible suffering of the entirety of the human race, you and I do not see anything to which you can attribute the name of Elohim. Elohim, Yahweh, did that. God did that. Jesus Christ did that. No, U.S. Coast Guard might have done it. United States Marines might have done it. But you don't see God intervening. So there's a reason why Isaiah says God is not intervening. You can't argue with me on that point. God is not taking a hand in world affairs. He's not taking a hand in national affairs. God does not deal with Dogwood City or with Coffee Landing or with Flint, Texas or with Tyler, Texas. He's simply not involving himself. But it's not because his hand is so short or that it's so impotent that it cannot save neither because he is deaf, so he doesn't hear the screeches, the screams, the cries, and the prayers, but your iniquities, your lawlessness, have separated between you and your God. It is just like a man digging a foxhole and ever enlarging the parapet as he digs the hole in the ground. He is, he is digging up a bulwark to protect him from the enemy's bullets. In this case, what we have done is dig ourselves a hole in the ground and a bulwark to shield ourselves from the face of God. We have erected between ourselves and God as a nation, as a world, as a, an entire world filled with all of humanity, not just the United States, because our sins, though they tower to heaven and they are a stench in his nostrils, are no worse than the sins of many other nations. Perhaps in some ways they are because we claim to be a Christian nation, not an Islamic or a Shintoist or a Buddhist nation, but nevertheless, like a stench in the nostrils of God, they stink before him and he turns his face away from us. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The Pharisees even knew that. They said, and I think the man who was healed, who was born blind, said, We know that God heareth not sinners, therefore, if this man were not from God, he could have done nothing. And that's true. God doesn't hear sinners, except sinners who are in the process of seeking God and wanting to reach God and wanting to repent of sin. Then he hears them. But they don't stay sinners long in that condition. For your hands are defiled with blood. And when they are, what you need to do immediately is get those book, TV, and movie rights. Because when your hands are defiled with blood, you're famous! Wonderful! 
We, like so many Yorkshire hogs in the United States, love that stuff. Have you seen what I've seen on television about the astronomical burst in subscriptions to all the keyhole kind of publications? All these people, doltish, probably with the IQ of a rhinoceros. I want to know. And so they buy that garbage. And there it is, right at your supermarket checkout stand. I would sooner be found with a Playboy magazine, and I don't intend to be found with either one, than to have one of those pieces of trash on my desk claiming to tell me something about what's going on. But the people who write that garbage are getting filthy rich in the American public, like so many squealing hogs at the slop trough are buying it in the hundreds of thousands of copies every single week. I cannot escape it. What do you know about O.J. Simpson and the trial? What do you know about the Cuban refugees? What do you know about what's going on? I have not seen a word from the time several weeks ago I preached to you about the Pope, about the Second Vatican, about when his trip might be to Jerusalem. You saw a little bit of a snippet real quickly, about 30 seconds, maybe not even that much, about the interception of the German authorities of weapons-grade plutonium that is on the black market coming out of the Soviet Union. You've seen almost nothing about Germany, almost nothing about the common market, almost nothing about what's happening in Japan. You are absolutely devoid of that information. You are ignorant of it. You do not know because most of you don't read the world press. You don't read The Economist. You don't read publications from other countries. And your news media is obsessed with only a few narrow little things. My wife and I were trying frantically to get something beside, and I think there were three separate channels. They must... They must either, they either are in collusion or something, or else their timing and their news hours is the same. But we were on the remote flipping around, and it was O.J. Simpson. Get rid of that. Another channel, O.J. Simpson. Get rid of that. Another channel, O.J. Simpson trial. Get rid of that. We couldn't avoid it. It was all over our television screen. It's the world we live in. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies. Now, not. Bill Clinton's lips, surely. None of those senators, surely. Did you read the scathing indictment of our first lady in Time magazine recently? The lies she told all dressed in pink in front of Lincoln's picture? They nailed her on one great big bald-faced prevarication after another. And they said at the end of their article, Slippery or Slick Willie meets Slippery Hillary. And you know, usually time, time has been, because it was a Catholic leftist publication, has usually always been a very, very liberal kind of a magazine. But they nailed the First Lady on just blatant lies that investigative reporters went back and found out she'd told complete untruths about the whitewater thing and about commodities trading and so on. Your lips have spoken lies. Well, if you look at the American public today, you will find that vast percentages of them know that their leaders in Washington are nothing but a pack of liars. They know that they kite checks. They know that several of them are under indictment. They know that many of them got where they are dishonestly. They wonder about where the campaign funds come from. Now, do you suppose it could ever be possible that as some of this, what they call pork, and we were treated to D'Amato and some other people doing a little ditty with a pink pig there in the background, which didn't really say anything because instead of giving me the information I want, who crafted it? 
from what city, where does the money go, what do they promise the guy that slipped that into the bill so they can get hundreds of thousands of dollars in downtown Philadelphia to have kids out there under bright lights playing basketball when they should have been asleep two hours ago so they can get up early and go back to school. I'd sure like to follow the money trail and find out who did it, but they won't tell you. You don't know. You're just ignorant of what's going on. They just give you little bitty snippets. So, I think when it says here that your lips have spoken lies, we know that the vast majority of the American populace believes that their leaders are absolute liars. Do you suppose it could remotely be possible that because somebody, and he's going to be just a local guy, I've met people and gone to rallies and speeches, and when George Bush came through and was running for president, that some of the leading lights of the city of Tyler invited me over there and I went to see that. And before that, when John Connolly was coming through here to run for president, he was running in the primary. Uh, John asked me to come into the room. He thought, because I was so newly out of Worldwide, that I still had a pretty good constituency. He wanted to talk to me about kind of getting on board. He didn't even know whether I was a Republican or Democrat or an Independent. I wasn't any of those. But uh, John Connolly said Waddy Watson wanted to talk to me. So we did, briefly. And that was kind of interesting. But it was also interesting that I am utterly unaware of any of the information that I feel that I, you know, need, that I wish that I had, so that I could even form an intelligent opinion about what the government and the leadership in Washington is doing. Do you think it's going to affect you any? Well, it's going to affect me because, you see, I have been a hunter for over 35 years, 40 years or more. And I happen to know if they'd have called it a defense weapon, it wouldn't have that horrible sound, assault weapon. And those assault guns have the ballistics and the power of about a 30-30, which is kind of the trajectory of a parabolic arc, you know, just... And then they wondered about those people down there at the shootout in Waco being armed better than some of the cops that charged in there. Well, sure they were. They had deer rifles, like mine. Like a 270 or a 30 06 or a 243 or a 338 Magnum or something like that. With real power. My 270 is over twice as powerful as the guns are going to ban. Now, I bought Franz Josef Strauss in Belgium as a gift for him coming over to talk to Ambassador College and letting me fly him all over the United States in the Falcon when he was the head of the CSU coalition down in Bavaria and was at one time tutored to become the future chancellor of Germany, and I gave him a Browning Automatic 270. That's twice as powerful as the guns that your knowledgeable Congress just banned. And it is exactly as rapid firing. It's built the same way. You just pull the trigger, bang, 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 till the magazine's empty. So, really, the Mini-14, the little 22s, I have a 22 like that, my son Mark has borrowed, going to be banned. Semiotic weapons. Just paint them all with the same brush. Absolutely makes no sense whatsoever because, you know, most crimes are not committed with those guns. Most of them are committed with handguns, and most of those handguns are obtained in theft and illegally. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice. You know, it was finally suggested, I think, by Bob Dole. He may not have been the one who drew the analogy, but how well I remember. It was one thing to be in a barracks when you were in the military. How many of you have been in the military service, please? How many of you? Thank you. Very good. Some of you, uh, I think, uh, 
E.B., you were in World War II, were you not? How many World War II veterans still among us here? Several. Good. Keep your hands up, if you would, for just a minute. And I'll have, how many Korean veterans? Anybody going to join me? Good. Well, there are a few of us. What, what kind of accommodations did they give you guys when you went out on bivouac? Now, you were serving your country, right? You were out there, maybe even in enemy territory. How did you live? Remember that foxhole I was talking about? A lot of people lived in foxholes. What did they eat? Sea rations. Most people would look at it. You know the joke. I wouldn't feed this to my dog. But that's what they had to eat. Did they have exactly as Sheriff Smith told me, and he'd be happy to come and say it on TV, so many square feet of room, so we don't overcrowd these poor misunderstood people, victims of society who have killed five or six people with a butcher knife. Don't overcrowd them. When you overcrowd rats, rats get confused and run around. They don't. They get disoriented, and it bothers the rats, and they tend to start attacking one another. So you've got to have so many square feet, and you've got to have exactly 68 to 72 degrees air condition. They've got to have three meals per day. They've got to have access to the library and to television. Got to have access to study materials, so many of them can go get a law degree to sue the people who put them in jail in the first place. And the sheriff was telling about how he had to spend his own personal money to go to court to defend himself against one of his prisons in the Smith County Jail because a big prisoner took a chicken leg away from a little prisoner, and the little prisoner blamed the sheriff and sued him for it. So I think it was Bob Dole who suggested, why don't we create something along the lines of a bivouac? Just string some barbed wire out there and throw in a bunch of tents and entrenching tools and cots and blankets. I mean, not completely un or inhumane. Give them the facilities for survival and let them have at it. How did we treat the Japanese internees up in Tule Lake in California when we took their farms and vegetable gardens and flower gardens and businesses away from them and herded them like so many cattle into a detention camp, which was our version of a concentration camp? Well, they built flimsy, wooden, unheated, uncooled barracks for them, to be sure, but that was all. Now today, the hair-shirted, breast-bleeding, breast-beating and bleeding, sheep-like people, who want to, to mollycoddle the most vicious criminals, just can't stand that idea. I'll tell you, you want to hear some, something that will drive you absolutely crazy? There's a farmer somewhere out in California recently was out plowing in the field and didn't happen to know where, where the kangaroo rats had been up and drove his tractor over some kangaroo rats. And they have sued him. I, I think he lost his tractor, didn't he? They took away the man's tractor because he killed some rats. The animal rights activist said that farmer didn't have the right to be plowing in that field because those rats had dug down in there and got them a nest. That's where we are in our United States today. Rats are more important than people. People care about rats when you kill them, but they don't care about a woman or a man unarmed with their hands like this, with their fingers being sliced all the way to their wrist with a huge big K-bar or a hunting knife. They don't care about that. I want to find out, did he do it? And you can get opinions, I mean, volatile opinions on both sides of the fence. I had somebody on the golf course the other day at Emerald Bay in a retirement community tell me, I know he didn't do it. Well, he knows something I don't know, because I don't know that. But it's interesting how deeply involved they become. Isaiah 59 is like taking hundreds of newspaper articles, hundreds of newspaper headlines, 
dozens of television broadcasts and just condensing it into a chapter of the Bible and applying it to the United States of America. None pleads or calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. You know what the conversations are between defense attorneys and the defendant in a murder trial? The opening words are, I don't care if you did it. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to defend you. So you got to level with me. And very quickly, up front, oftentimes, the defense attorney will find out, yeah, he did it. Because the defense attorney says, anything you tell me is privileged, and I could be sued and lose my profession, lose my livelihood, lose my future if I ratted on you. So it doesn't matter whether he did it. The point is, why? What were the motives? So now, if a policeman picks up a bloody glove, and they find out that particular policeman has a racist background, probably the entire general public is going to believe he planted that glove. How could he, be known, how could he have known before he got to the scene there had been a murder? Well, he couldn't. How did he know it was O.J. Simpson? Well, he didn't. But somehow he stopped by a store, a hardware store, cut his own hand, smeared blood all over it, you know, got the glove all ready, taped up the wound, and threw it down there. Whose home was it, you said? And you've heard what they're doing now. They're discrediting this guy so they won't even believe the fact that he found the bloody glove. Well, I'd better get on with Isaiah 59, although it does cause me to think about what's happening. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth lawlessness because... The laws of our land attribute to it. They hatch adders or dangerous snakes' eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eats of their eggs dies, and that which is crushed breaks out into a viper instead of a nice omelet to hold a baby snake. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are the works of iniquity, and the act of violence in, is in their hand. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Would it ever be a thought that, oh, I love this job, oh, I love this office, oh, I love the pomp and the aplomb and the ceremony, I want to hang on to it for four more years or for eight more years. It's cushy. What are the Pharisees like? Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? They love what? To be called rabbi, to be called master, teacher in the public places. They love what? The chief seat. So they love what? Perquisites. They love the perks. They love the fondling, fawning obsequiousness, the attention of the people who are beneath them and over whom they have power. That's in religion. I'm coming to that in a minute. It's also in government. It's also part of human nature. In any organization where there is anybody who has the power to tell a group of people where to go, why they should go there, what to do when they get there, and has the power over their lives, you're going to find that ugly ogre of vanity in human nature rearing its filthy, ugly head. He says, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. Look at the waste of the power of the United States of America at the billions of dollars that go for so-called social programs that could go for things like schools, 
could go for vocational schools, could go for the kind of reform schools of which we were very afraid when I was a boy in the 1930s, which were just exactly like a military boot camp to which they would send a truant boy and put him out on a farm and hand him a shovel and a rake and make him work and make him learn how to grow vegetables and make him learn about farm equipment machinery and teach him a vocation, teach him a skill, teach him something that could get him a job because they were trying to rescue these wavered boys. There was a movie many, many years ago, way back in the 1930s, about the guy they called Father, that I don't want to repeat that name, Flanagan, who started a Catholic school up outside of Omaha, Nebraska, called Boys Town. And that was an effort by the Catholic Church to teach truant and wayward and juvenile delinquent boys and to get them started back on the right path. Of course, it eventually is at the responsibility of the home and the family. But the home and the family is becoming a thing of the past. Vast segments of American youngsters today have never known a traditional family in which father is in his appropriate role, and I'll have more to say about that in the months and the years to come. And if and when I dare to read the Bible, the Word of God, open it up and show you what God says about the man and the woman, I'm probably going to get some rotten eggs, some bunks, cheers, and all kinds of wonderful hate mail from people. But that doesn't bother me. I'm going to do it anyway because it's what the Word of God plainly says. But those roles are completely upside down today. I don't know about you, but I don't go to dykes on bikes rallies. But they do take place, don't they? in big major cities of the United States. It says wasting. And if that is not a description of our federal government, I've never seen one. And destruction are in their paths, the way of peace they know not. And there is no judgment in their going. Well, we can't let Castro dictate to us our policy. But he's doing it, isn't he? He changed the policy because of what Castro did. A knee-jerk change which does what? hurts the people who are trying to escape. Now he's got them in a concentration camp. They're just helpless economic refugees trying to fight their way to freedom at terrible risk of their lives, hundreds of them drowning like rats, and instead of rescuing them, they're sticking them in a concentration camp down on Cuban soil. But our president has said he's not going to let Castro dictate to him the policy, but he's doing it, isn't he? Castro dictated that policy, didn't he? Sure he did. Sure he did. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment, no discretion, no logical, rational, sensible, common sense understanding of decisions that are made. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goes therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us. We as a people. Neither does justice overtake us. You can hope, you can wait, you can sit glued to your TV uh, uh, station and watch. We wait for light, but behold, obscurity. I think there were a lot of millions of Americans that virtually wept when that stupid crime bill was passed because they knew it wasn't going to do anything to deter crime. By the way, it has nothing to do with coffee landing and Flint. By the way, it has nothing to do with Tyler. Oh, by the way, it has nothing to do with the state of Texas. Did you know that? You didn't? It's federal crime. The only sentences they're dealing with, the only punishments they're dealing with, were crimes that are called a federal crime. It's a federal crime bill. It's not just a crime crime bill. And crime happens all over the place. 
It has nothing to do with crimes that are committed every day in Tyler, Texas. It has nothing to do with local drive-by shootings or gangs or thuggery or rape or anything else. It's a federal crime that they're dealing with. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places like dead men. We roar like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. I'll skip to verse 13. In transgressing and lying against the eternal and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, which they do, words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. It doesn't matter what is the truth. It matters what works. Pragmatism. What will go down? What will they swallow? Would you believe all these expressions that say the truth doesn't really matter? And he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's what I am today. There's a bomb, the operator said, and Garner Ted's going to die. Then there's the idiot that writes me continually with all kinds of veiled threats. And there are other people who have talked about wanting to do me in. Then it was a guy at Pete's Tabernacles many years ago with a pistol, and they had to grab me and get me into the airplane, get me back to a remote part of the landing strip and tax you out of there real quick because the guys on the ground didn't know where he was. Because, you see, if you stand for the things we stand for in God's church, there are those who would simply like to kill you because they can't stand the bright, harsh light to be projected onto their filthy uh, minds and their filthy character. He that departeth from evil makes himself a prey. Does that happen to you in the second grade, fourth grade, seventh grade, twelfth grade, college, chicken? You better believe it does. The mores that are extant in any organized area where many, many human beings are involved always will tend to degeneration. It will not tend in the other direction. Truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil makes himself a prey. And the Eternal saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. And here is a prophecy about Christ. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance. Now, there are many, many, many Methodist and Baptist ladies that can't quite handle that. But that's okay. They will learn eventually. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, listen, because that's exactly what I've called for in many, many articles, including my article in which I talked about crime can be stopped, here's how, or a booklet rather, in talking about mandatory sentences of 20 years of hard labor for the commission of any crime where a gun is present. There are ways to curb and to bring to heel violent criminals, those who commit acts that deserve death, including drug lords, drug traffickers, rapists. I think all rapists, pardon me for saying this, it's merely a clinical word, should immediately be castrated. Before you start talking about anything else, that's the immediate first thing. Child molesters, same thing. They'll never do it again. No, they won't. They'll go sing tenor in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir or something, but they'll never do it again. I'm sorry, I'm being a little humorous, but you know, I mean, I mean that with the bottom of my heart. 
uh, everybody just, oh, they're fascinated by John Wayne Bobbitt, who's now going to become a movie star. The whole nation did backstrokes through that particular slop trough. But when you would dare to say that something which could be done to a brutal, filthy man who would dare to rape a child and would ensure that he would never do it again, it's so humane, it's no worse than what some ancient emperors did, and even back, they voluntarily did it in Italy. They were called the Castratti, if you've ever studied your music, and they traveled all over Europe in some of the great auditoriums and sang in their high-pitched little boys' voices that never changed. They could trill like a contralto, for pity's sake. But one thing they were never going to do, molest a child or rape a woman. So... They will not listen to that, but he is going to put on, and has already, it's just waiting for the time of his arrival, vengeance for clothing and zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. So the way God meets out punishment for crimes and sins is exactly proportionate to the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, smiting for smiting, burning for burning, life for life. Thus you shall put sin away or crime away from yourself. Accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries. Is he going to do it without any emotional input at all? The view many people have of Jesus Christ, the Savior, some of the rather maudlin songs, we have a number of them in the book, and you know, I'm, I don't even know them. I'm just ignorant. I stand there. There are many, many songs in our book I've never even heard before in my entire life because I did not grow up as a religious hobbyist. And I didn't go, and I'm not saying you did if you heard them. You might have been in a church and I had a church background where they sang that music. But I never heard it because the uh, Church of God Seventh-day hymnal, those that they did sing, and there are many of them in there that I do remember, like a high airplane I have found. I used to think that was a high airplane instead of a higher plane. And uh, there were others like that that I vaguely remember from my youth, but I don't remember many of them, so I'm standing there mumbling trying to learn them. And... I have just not had that kind of a background because religion, per se, was the last thing that was going to attract me. I tried to run away from religion. More of that a little later on. He will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Eternal from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the eternal shall lift up a standard against him. And that is talking, Revelation, the 19th chapter, the second half, about the defeat of the beast and his armies and the second coming of Christ. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the eternal. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the eternal, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, generation after generation, the truth of God, the law of God, the love of God, will not depart out of human mouths, says the Eternal, from henceforth and forever. What are we doing right now? What is this exercise? What are we doing here? Well, we're sitting here in church. Well, I don't want to shock anybody. But this is the second part of the commission Jesus Christ of Nazareth gave to his true church. And even though I do preach and I do speak on the Sabbath to God's people from time to time, quite often as a matter of fact, that is not the reason why I was called. It is not the reason why I was 
grabbed, I think, forced, I think, directed and channeled in my life into a lifelong commitment for a particular job. It is the last thing in the world I ever would have wanted. And if it were merely up to me to shop around to try to find which church would be the most satisfying to me, I wouldn't even start looking. Because the last thing in the world I would want to do is to just be, quote, religious in the sense that I mean that in the worldly sense of the world's religions with all of the things they go through just because that was what I wanted to do with my life. My father, without knowing that he was repeating it in his book, Mystery of the Ages, if you look through there and do what I did, you'll be amazed. There may be as many as 14 or 21 subtitles that almost are identical. Now, comma, why the church? Then he'll say, why the church? A few pages later. Then, what is the purpose for the church? If you, he keeps forgetting that he explained it. And he explains it, and then he goes through and explains it again. Look at that book and read it if you have a copy at home, and you'll see what I'm talking about. I've underlined it because the book was a compilation of dozens of articles, co-worker letters, of other old articles, and so on. Many people thought that he, at age about 92 or 3 or 4, was sitting there typing. It wasn't anything of the kind. It was put together by the Dean Boys and some other people from past writings, and they didn't do that good of a job of, an edi of editing. Plus, I am a co-author of that book, Mr. The Ages. I wrote many pages, several almost full chapters. I can show you exactly the lines. I can show you the booklet of... Uh, the Wonderful World Tomorrow, What Shall It Be Like, and the segments that I wrote of that, which I co-authored with my dad, and the segments they pulled out of that booklet and put in the book called Mystery of the Ages, which was supposed to be the greatest book ever written, uh, written since the Bible, right? That's what they said. You're looking at me like, no, but that's what they said. They actually put that in print. That is documented. That was the greatest book ever written since the Bible. That's why I suppose some young people up here at Booth City, when they had, had them stacked up to the eaves, and they were in there carrying boxes out to take them to be burnt, had such a problem with the job they'd given them to do. We're burning a book that was the best book since the Bible. Anyway, that's the way that outfit operates. But they did it in. But you know, my father really zeroed in on why the church? Because he understood, and he continually talked to the people that the church is the instrument of human beings in the hands of God for the purpose of his work. And what is the work of the church? It is the preaching of the advanced news of the coming world ruling government of God. Now, who controls you? Are you in control? Who is in control here? Well, you and I both know that it's the House of Representatives and the Senate of the United States. You and I know that we have no control. For decades in the worldwide church, we use scriptures such as 1 Corinthians 12, Hebrews 13, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4, 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 13, 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 11, 2 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, 2 Timothy 2, 15, 1 Peter the 5th chapter, etc. Obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves unto such, etc., etc. For God is not the author of confusion, but of order, and so on. And for decades in that church, government, order, submit yourselves, look up to the ministry, was hammered into the heads of thousands of people. 
Now, I've said, and I do not say it facetiously, facetiously, I say it with the scars on my body that have taught me that it is true, and I think in rather cynical view of the situation which has obtained in the worldwide church since my unfortunate departure, dictators do not groom successors. I'll let that sink in there for a minute. In the military, in only a few of the elitist organizations, it is required that every person of whatever rank learn every job in the Delta Force and in the Navy SEALs. The reason being that in their operations, maybe black-faced rubber boats rowing ashore from a submarine behind enemy lines as they did on the beaches in Kuwait and in Iraq during the Gulf War, and one of them, like an officer, is taken out the people right immediately beneath him know immediately what they need to do. But you see what happened in the worldwide church? There was a gigantic, yawning maw, a huge grand canyon of a gap between the lay membership called the sheep, called the flock, called the little people, and the ministry who were way up there somewhere. And those of you who are formerly from that organization know exactly what I'm talking about. I got into one of the longest arguments with Mr. Les McCullough one time because he was against what I was saying. I didn't think the ministry ought to have that great, big, huge, special section of about 120 seats up here in the front Feast of Tabernacles. I think they belong back there, sprinkled among the people, that each one of those local pastors ought to be sitting among the people that he pastored and served. I didn't think they ought to have the chief seats. Neither did I think, and one of them, who I will not name, but he was very, very high up, an evangelist in that organization, when I was in the boardroom and said, I think the ministry ought to pay their own way to the Feast of Tabernacles. We stand up in the pulpit and tell the people to save the festival tithe. Why can't we save the festival tithe, even if you think it's not required? Why do they get a great big check of a thousand or two thousand or three thousand dollars in their pocket to go carting off to the Feast of Tabernacles? I was blown out of the water on that one, too. And one of these men, who was a very, very prominent leader in the worldwide church, said, well, if that, were, if that were so, I couldn't afford to go to the feast. Think about that for a minute. Just let that sit there and just work its way on down there for a minute now. Just think about that for a minute. Isn't that something? Am I right? Was there a yawning gap? Was there a bridge which could never be crossed? Was there some kind of a great, big, huge difference between the elitists who were the ministry and the lay membership. You bet there was. Now, who is in control here? Who is in control? Our government seeks to play God. Our government now is saying to you and to me that they, a small group of them, certain petty bureaucrats, certainly the first couple in the White House, know a whole lot more than you do, or than I do, or than millions of other people do about how to row their own canoe, how to run their own business, how to take care of their employees, how to take care of themselves, what to do when they get sick, how to find a job. You can't go find a job. You've got to have the government come in and come in with all kinds of millions of dollars to build some kind of a program so when you lose your job, you look around the yellow pages, and there are already dozens of government services in there, and you find out this new job center. And you go there, and they retrain you. So all the continuing education and all of the schools and the colleges and all of the correspondence courses and all the vocational schools, all of the on-the-job training, the special motel up here in Kansas someplace run by... 
Holiday Inn, where all the people living there are in training to become managers of Holiday Inn, and they're paid while they're on the job. The American Airlines hostess school over in Fort Worth. Forget all of those. The government will come in, wipe those out of the way, start a brand new job training program. So instead of going down to the unemployment office and standing in line to get a check that came out of your paycheck and mine, out of taxes, they go to a government place and say, retrain me to do something else. It is unbelievable at the amount of control, the amount of takeover, the amount of stifling, smothering control that our socialistic, Marxist government is beginning to impose upon the United States. And the First Lady's guru is named Lerner. He's a Jewish Marxist. He is a dyed-in-the-wool communist, socialist, and they proved out of his writings when she gave that speech about a year and a half ago in Houston, about 90% of it was plagiarized directly out of Lerner's writings, even talking about we need to redefine what it means to be a human being in the 20th century. What kind of garbage is that? Redefine what it means to be a human being? Oh, for pity's sake, just stand and look in the mirror next time you take a shower. There I am, human being. I redefined what it means. The government is trying to play God. They're trying to sound like God. Now, unfortunately, that happened to God's church. That happened to the parent organization. And it must not happen to the Church of God International. Who controls you? Who makes your decisions? Who decides for you? To whom do you go before you make any kind of a decision on your own? We came up with, in the Ministerial Council some time ago, a decision involving the appointment here and there where there were no qualified pastors or whether there were pastors who were simply too busy and the church had grown too large or whether there were pastors who did not have the manifold skills that were necessary to really serve the church in every capacity to appoint a man called, or a woman, called an administrator. And that is at the pastor's discretion. And all that person has to worry about doing is finding a hall and paying the rent and arranging for chairs and lights and a sound system, a microphone, and heating in the winter and cooling in the summer and adequate parking and just material things like that. Not a minister, doesn't have to stand up and preach. That proved in the minds of some people, I think we've got it all sorted out now, and after the initial fear that went out there of some people thinking that this was a spy sent from Tyler, which was nonsense, it was at the behest of a local pastor who would look from among his congregation for a man who he might feel he could ordain as a deacon, who he could ask to be in control of some of the physical necessities for the church. And many of them are simply sitting there in somebody's private home, and in some cases in a rented hall, and they're going to take a look at this videotape next week, sit down, plug it in, they will sit there, they will watch a videotape. Now, a lot of times people really are crying to say, when can we have a minister? I won't go through all of the lessons we have learned and that we learned in spades back in 1981. I won't go into great detail about the many, many times that we had the penalty phase come upon us as a direct result of what I just told you about what happened in Worldwide, of the infinite gap between a trained ministry 
and the laity completely inequipped and unprepared to accept any degree of responsibility for themselves whatsoever. And when the pastor disappeared, they just didn't know what to do. What do we do now? Where do we go? Well, just go to church. Well, what do we do when we get there? Watch a tape. Then what? Well, pretend that you can visit for a while and then uh, have some coffee, unless you're a Mormon, but anyway, maybe soft drinks, cookies. And then what? Well, shake hands, uh, go to dinner, whatever. What's, what's the big deal? You know, you live your life. How, how, how many hours of the week do you spend in church? Sometimes an hour and a half, sometimes three. But about that, divide that into the hours of the week. How much of your lifetime is involved here? The rest of the time, who is it who is caring for you? Who makes your decisions every day? Who decides what kind of a car you drive? Who decides what you put on your plate? Who decides what you eat? Who decides what you wear? You do. But you see, today, both, and I see the analogy just glaringly to me, between the federal government and what did go on in the worldwide church years ago that created such an incredible gap where there was just no ability on the part of people who were left leaderless, leaderless to take care of themselves, to stand on their own two feet. And that same feeling is still extant there today. Government wants to live our lives for you or for us. It wants to decide for us. It wants to protect us. It wants to care for us. It wants to help us. It wants to provide for us. But it always wants to control us. Who is in control of your life? I hope probably the best thing you could say is Jesus Christ. Most of us wouldn't be that pretentious. And the next best thing you can say in all humility is you. You are. I am. I'm in control of my life. I'm in control of myself. Nobody else rules me. Nobody else tells me what to do. I have to decide on a daily basis every single time a choice comes to me. I have to decide whether I'm going to do exactly what God wants me to do. I'm going to turn to Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians, the second chapter. The Apostle Paul had to go a little careful sometimes in what he wrote to Timothy and what he said to other people because there were some very delicate situations. Matter of fact, there's an article, and the magazine is out. Mr. Dart wrote an article in the current uh, number of the 20th Century Watch, which has to do with conversion and which talks about the Apostle Paul as an example and the kind of man he was and many of the things that he had to continually fight and to try to overcome as he went on through life because he had not completely changed the old Saul was still there in him a lot of times, and he had to fight that. And it's well worth your reading. Chapter 2, verse 1, If there therefore be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Don't we wish that could be true throughout God's church all the time? But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others, having to do with the concern toward others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, 
and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, the death of the stake, as it should read. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is the boss, he is the ruler, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In the beginning of that book, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. He had to be careful here, didn't he? Because there were some overseers there who were going to read this letter. There were deacons there who were going to read this letter. But Paul is obviously saying that he wants them to continue without him being there as a person who could be a shepherd, as an example, as someone who could continually encourage them, admonish them, rebuke them when they needed it, correct them, and so on. And so he urged them, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whose salvation is it, brethren of God's church? And I ask that on this tape program of you who will be hearing this in one week all over this nation and around the world. Whose salvation is it? It's yours. It's your intensely private and personal salvation. Who's going to work it out? You've got to come to the place, standing alone for Jesus Christ, that it does not matter to you who is a transitory, part-time, once-in-a-while leader or who is not? I could die of a heart attack tonight, but let me tell you something about the Church of God International. And it has nothing to do with my confidence in all these men that God has sent. It's partly that, but it's partly something else. I now know that the Church of God International would go right on as before and would do the job and would fulfill the commission Jesus Christ gave to his church because the strength of this church is not in its handful of ministers and leadership. It is in the Holy Spirit of God dwelling fully in every individual from every woman to every man. The strength of this church is in the Holy Spirit in each one of its individuals and the tenacity and the determination with which they stand there for Jesus Christ, regardless as to the disappearance of a leader, as to the absence of a man of whom they've grown fond in the pulpit, whether it is through resignation, through sickness, through death, through accident, through maiming or injury, through whatever, they will have the courage and the determination to stand there if they are truly the people of Jesus Christ of Nazareth because they are not willing to give the control over into somebody else's hands. They are going to keep the control. They're going to make their own decisions. They're going to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice that he said in verse 19, I trust the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. 
Kind of delicate, isn't it? He's writing to a church where he acknowledges there were overseers and deacons, but he's also saying, Timothy is the kind of a man I trust. And when Timothy gets there and comes back, I'll really know the way things are. For I have no man like-minded. That must have stung a few of those guys there, don't you think, a little bit? In that congregation, for Paul to tell that church, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. So never forget that, brethren. I think it is so obvious, and I cannot help but see a tremendous analogy between the attempted takeover, the attempt of stifling control of the federal government into every last little nook and cranny of your life, and what indeed did happen in a church with which I was once affiliated. Let's never let it happen to the Church of God International. You keep the control.